Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm warmer than I was last week. Yeah, that's right. There's sun the couple, last couple of days. It's really nice. Yeah, the storms have cleared out. Uh, we, we had we had Storm Miriam or Storm Tracy, wh- whichever one you want to call it, uh, come through. Uh, it's done. B- by the way, we figured out, or well, we didn't figure out. My colleague Victoria Yan at the Daily Star did some investigating, figured out why some people were calling it Tracy and some people were calling it Miriam. It's yeah. two different bodies here in Lebanon. One of them is the meteorology department at the Beirut airport. And the other one is like the Agricultural Research Institute, Leary. And they just like both decided the, to name the storm and they chose different names. So another there you example, have it. Another example of great coordination among our government agencies, I guess. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the storm uh, did take four lives at least. And, and it also caused a lot of destruction. So we're sort of in the process of dealing with that right now. You know, there there was a big landslide that took out the main highway from Beirut to Tripoli uh, or, or covered part of it. Uh, and so I, they are clearing that up, cleaning that up and just trying to fix all of the other things that have sort of gone wrong with the two storms that came through Norma and then Miriam slash Tracy. Uh, yeah, but we also had things happening in politics, right? Yeah. The big thing this week, or one of the big things this week, was the meeting in Bikirki, yeah. right? the, the seat of the Maronite Church. Uh, the patriarch, Bashar al-Rai, invited the main Christian politicians all to come up for this, you know, Maronite political get-together. And some interesting things happened there. Um, one thing that happened is that Rai uh, addressed something explicitly that you don't hear talked about a whole lot, and that is the, uh, the potential for like the Lebanese system, instead of being based on 50-50 Muslim Christian to go to one-third, one-third, one-third Sunni, Shi'i Christian. And of course, Rai was against that, right? Because that would be, you know, a weakening of the Christian position. Of course, and and this is called in Arabic al-Muthalatha, or this is how it's referred to in media. And it's it's been a big issue, at least as far as I remember, ever since the May uh, seven. Uh, mini civil war in 2008 uh, after that it was talked about more and more in the media and no major political force and especially not Shiite political forces like um, speaking of Behbiri, head of Amal or Hezbollah uh, endorsed this as a demand but other political forces kind of accused them of wanting it right nobody nobody's going to come out and say this at this point of like we want this to happen we're not at that level yet but to give some context for that, this logic of the uh, of the Muthalifi is is to reflect the new population distribution in Lebanon. Basically, the fact that Christians are no not half of the population, so why should they have half of the state and the positions in the state? Yeah, as we mentioned before on this podcast, you can basically think of Lebanese demographics uh, by a simple rule of thumb: one third, one third, one third for these three groups of people. So, if if we did go to that system, it would more or less reflect what the demographics are right now. Yeah. Uh, but also in Kirki, uh, you know, a lot was made out of the handshake between Sleiman Frangie and uh, Givran Basile. The reason that a lot is made out of this is that both of these two men are major contenders to succeed Michel Aoun as president of the republic, right? Yeah. Uh, along with Samir Jaja. Those are like sort of the three big names that uh, have been running <laughs> 
forever uh, uh, to succeed Aoun. And Tranjiyu was uh, the candidate opposed to Aoun in the race that got Aoun elected in the end when Saad Hariri removed his, uh, his endorsement from Tranjiyu to Aoun. Right, right, right. Uh, of course, that that little handshake didn't necessarily signify a lot or last very long because right afterwards, Frangie came out against the blocking third, any sort of blocking third for FPM, for the Aounists. And Frangie, I mean, he even said like, oh, we're against this one third plus one veto power in the cabinet, in, in a, a future cabinet, right? For those who want to use it against the rest of us Christians. Basically accusing Basile, like saying, if you get this, if you get this, you know, 11 ministers in a 30 minister cabinet, then you're going to be using it against me or you might be using it against uh, other Christians as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Basile fired right back at him and and basically called, like said, talked about those who are servile and they are stabbing people in the back and stuff like that. Uh, basically not naming Frangie, but I mean, everybody sort of knew where these comments were directed at, right? That, or at least everyone perceived Basile as uh, firing straight back at Frangie. Uh, so so those two definitely still political foes. But the major political foes, FPM and LF, were on a more friendly... Uh... Yeah, or at least less hostile, I would say. Yeah, and this week marked the third anniversary of the Ma'arab agreement between Aoun and Jaja, right? Yeah, on Friday, and both the Jaja and Basile tweeted to this effect. E even though the Ma'arab agreement, it seems to be basically all but dead. Yeah, but what I understood from the tweets is that although the agreement itself is not taken as seriously anymore, the concept of reconciliation behind it between Aoun and Jaja, the big civil war foes, lives on. And this was reflected in both uh, Jaja and Basile's tweet. Yeah, yeah. And, and one one thing that I just thought was a convenient fact is in Jaja's tweet, he tweeted out like a picture that happened from the Maurab agreement mm -hmm. and just conveniently, Basile was not in it. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing when I saw it. <laughs> uh, and Jaja also did not attend Bikirki this week. Uh, he was out of the country. Um, so I don't know. It's either that or he doesn't think that it's uh, top notch enough for him to be there. Yeah, I mean, like, he's definitely on that top level of the Zoma, you know. Mm. He, he probably considers himself, you know, sort of like a, a peer of Michel Aoun, not mm. a peer of Gibran Basile. Uh, but I, I think that all of this, you know, the Bikirki meeting and the Arab Summit, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute, it sort of like took all of the air out of the room. Just to give an update, though, for our listeners it has been 244 days without a cabinet, 242 days since Haru was tasked with forming a new one, and really nothing happened this week because, like I said, politicians were just busy doing other things. But we did have one piece, I think, of significant news, and that is Abbas Ibrahim, the head of general security, who's, who's you know, this guy is sort of considered a heavyweight. Uh, you know, when he is involved in negotiations, typically something gets done. Yeah, he makes deals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He said, I'm out. I'm no longer involved in the cabinet formation process. So take that for what it's worth. <laughs> if, if you're thinking there's going to be, you know, some sort of breakthrough on cabinet, this guy, the, the guy who is generally considered the deal maker, said, I, I have nothing to do with this anymore. This guy literally has rescued so many hostages from ISIS and he can't form the government. This is how complicated it seems. Uh, uh, yeah, seems it's ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, like like we said, uh, the other big event that is happening uh, right now as we are recording this, we're, we're recording this on Saturday. There is, is this 
Arab Economic and Social Development Conference, which the the actual summit is tomorrow, right? But they've been having these preparatory meetings, you know, I guess Thursday, Friday, today, Saturday, and then uh, on Sunday, by the time you listen to this podcast, everything will have been wrapped up and we will know exactly what happened. Uh, but as of right now, it, it seems as though it, it's been, the summit has been less than a resounding success. We'll put it that way. Especially in terms of participation. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you had the Libyan delegation counseling, uh, saying it won't be participating after the whole issue with, uh, with Birri refusing Libyan participation and then some uh, Amal movement youngsters going to the streets and uh, you know bringing down the Libyan flag and stepping on it and replacing it with... They the, tried to burn it, but it didn't burn. Some problem with the textile, I think, I guess. Yeah, maybe they should have sprung for higher quality flags. <laughs> And the other major absence is the Syrian state, which uh, is absent not because of Lebanon's position only, although we have an issue with Prime Minister Saad Hariri refusing partic- uh, serious participation, while other fo- other forces like uh, FPM, Gibran Basile spoke about it explicitly, and of course Birri and Hezbollah and all of Syria's allies are saying Syria has to be uh, involved. But it's actually the League of Arab States that still hasn't uh, accepted Syria back, and this is why Syria is not present. And, and so all of this means that out of all of the leaders that were supposed to come, it seemed up until yesterday as though only three leaders would be there. The the heads of state of Mauritania, Somalia, and, and of course, Michel Aoun. Although uh, there was a headline today in Al-Akhbar saying, Aoun, don't bless them with your participation, right? Exactly, exactly. So uh, Al-Akhbar seems to be on the side of... Aoun, just stay away as well. You might as well. Nobody else is coming. But then we learned, uh, reportedly, that the Emir of Qatar is going to come, show up personally at the summit uh, on Sunday. That's quite a smart move with everyone saying, like, all of these Arab states and their leaders because they're controlled by the Americans. That's why they're boycotting the conference, right? So it's uh, it's a smart move for the Qatari Emir to say, hey, I'm your real friend and I don't... uh, Exactly, exactly. Take orders from anyone. Exactly, exactly. It's a very, it, it, it's a nice little way for Qatar to sort of like stick it to Saudi and to the Emirates. Yeah. But the summit did have uh, effects just on the ground here as well. A lot of things are just closed here in Beirut, right? A lot of streets are closed, which is causing problems for some people. And But I don't know, it's, it's also kind of nice. Like my roommate came back from a morning run today and was like, oh, it was the best run I've ever had because there weren't a bunch of cars and there wasn't a bunch of smog. So I guess it is what you make of it. (laughs) But like back to the political side of things, I I think a lot of Lebanese are getting a lot of humor out of this conference, you know, especially because it's, it's, you know, like economic and social development conference. That's, That's what it is. But Lebanon is sort of like on the brink of collapse economically and financially <laughs> even linguistically it's called the summit right which is which in arabic is the same word as peak you know so this is the economic peak happening here but we're as far as we can be from that peak in in, in terms of our economy exactly um you, you'll remember we talked about this last week not this past thursday but the thursday before we had these remarks from the finance minister ali hassan khalil saying oh we're you know restructuring the debt which caused a huge issue um, so last Sunday night, all of the like economic bigwigs, like the president, the prime minister, the finance minister, the head of the budget and finance committee, uh, and a couple other people had this like meeting in Babda Palace, 
to sort of like get on the same page. But then the next very next day, BDL announced a, a new policy that sort of like shot everything to hell. Uh, they, they said that if you are wiring money like through Western Union or MoneyGram or whatever to Lebanon, the person who's picking up here, picking it up here has to pick it up in Lebanese lira. They cannot pick it up in U.S. dollars, which, as you can imagine, did wonders for confidence in the monetary system. Yeah. But then they fixed it and said it's only for Western Union and MoneyGram and not bank transfers, right? They, they made this clarification because of the panic that, uh, that uh, ensued. Right. And the messaging on this was really sort of off from the beginning because they, like, the, the actual order itself never said anything about banks, right? And so they didn't get out ahead of this and say it was only for uh, um, wire services, uh, Western Union MoneyGram. Uh, but secondly, there seemed to be a lot of confusion as to why they did this. And and so we had like a Nahar English, for instance, talking to somebody from the central bank saying this is basically done to preserve the central bank's foreign currency reserves. Which is at the core of the crisis. Right, exactly. Which is what everybody thought this was, you know, the reason for uh, of for anyway but then like later on Riyad Saleme came out and said oh no it's this uh, it's anti-money laundering and nobody nobody believed it I, I don't think of course not no it, it, the the I mean if he had said that from the beginning maybe some people would have believed it but the fact that you had people like even somebody from the central bank coming out and say no it, it, it it's about the dollar and foreign currency reserves it's not about money laundering uh, means that by the time that Riyad Saleme came out and clarified this stuff, uh, nobody was going to believe like his version of it. Yeah, but in my opinion, Monday's news, the the circular from the central bank, does not contradict the meeting uh, and Abdat. I think it's a decision made in the meeting because, I mean, you wouldn't meet at night and then the next morning your central bank government would make a decision that is not discussed in that meeting with the president and the finance minister and the association of banks, etc. I think it was a meeting one of the meeting points um, as a solution to bring in some uh, some dollars into uh, the central bank, as you're saying, but also because the banks have been reassured in the meeting itself that there is no debt restructuring plan. This is what the meeting's conclusion was. And they made Finance Minister Ali Hassan Khalil read it because he's the same person who said that there would be a debt plan before. Um, so the banks are assured that this won't happen. And then the next day, also the policy of the central bank or the circular did not affect the bank uh, transfers. Right. But the, the, the timing, both, both the timing and the messaging were just really poorly done, I, I, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're if you're trying to establish or reestablish some confidence in the lira, this is, this is not what you do. Speaking of our various woes financially and economically. Uh, this is what we want to talk about. One potential solution to this, right? Th- this week, uh, Nizar and I have gone through the McKinsey report, so you don't have to, but we still encourage you to. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> and and we're basically going to sort of like go through it and then and then talk a little bit about what we think they got right, what we think they got wrong, and sort of like the larger picture involved. So to start with the basics, um, the McKinsey report was commissioned by the government in October 2017, just before Hariri got held uh, in Saudi Arabia, and that whole crisis happened. And it took the company around eight months to finish the report. Um, the main purpose of it, you remember when we had a new government, a new plan for Lebanon, etc., like this optimistic and positive 
uh, environment that we had. Yeah, things were getting back on track for once. Yeah, so the report in its first or second slides uh, says that the purpose is um, to grow the GDP of Lebanon and create jobs through selecting productive sectors that could become competitive and understand the government's role in this regard. So it's basically a whole economic vision for the transformation of the Lebanese economy that everyone has been talking about and recommending for ages. Um, but the study itself was kind of kept secret for a while until it was uh, released by the economy minister, Raed Khouri, although it was not a final version, it was still a draft, as, as the report mentions on, in many places. But all, most of the content and all of the recommendations are almost final. Right, and it, it was just released this year, earlier this month. So this is this is pretty fresh. Yeah, exactly. So how they did this study, without going through the methodology, especially that they don't really explain it in the report, but we know that they held interviews with lots of stakeholders, around 200 people, uh, ministers, public officials, MPs, uh, representatives, of, representatives of NGOs and um, trade unions, in addition to what they call global experts and lots of businessmen, the majority or the biggest chunk of people interviewed were businessmen or leaders in the private sector, around 75 people. And the idea is that uh, through this report, they would analyze the Lebanese economy and select five sectors with potential and then four require, general requirements for the potential, for the development of this potential. And then they would choose three projects that they would recommend. And now we can go through this. Yeah. So if you're looking at this, this, this is a humongous document. It's like 1,200 pages in, in the English version. They've got an Arabic version that's like 300 pages long. But uh, if you're looking at the English, I mean, that's it's a lot and it's easy to be sort of overwhelmed. So like very quickly, you can basically divide it into three sections. There's sort of like this introductory executive summary along with like an introduction with like a pseudo methodology and like a pseudo bibliography and stuff. And then there's sort of a, the first substantive section is like sort of how things are right now, where they go through a whole bunch of sectors, something like 15 sectors and just basically like give you this humongous data dump of, of, of just numbers and data and information on each of these sectors. And that's about 500 slides. Uh, this is, we, we say pages, but it's really, it's a PowerPoint presentation. Yep. It's, it's a PowerPoint deck from hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you have the intro, then you have the how things are section. Then I guess your third section, second real substantive section is the how things should be section. The, you know, okay, we've told you how we see the Lebanese economy. Now we're going to tell you what we think should happen. These sectors should be prioritized. These are projects that we recommend that Lebanon carry out. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that encompasses, uh, if, if you're like looking at the outline that they give you, that encompasses like chapters four through eight, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it includes like chapter four, which is vision and chapter five, which is like the, these five sectors they, that they talk about. Chapter six, which is like the policy and infrastructure requirements in order to make these like sectors work right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, chapter seven is like a special little thing on a performance delivery management unit, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and then chapter eight is like these flagship projects that they think Lebanon should go ahead and go full bore into immediately. So I guess with this whole um, outline that you're uh, that you're describing a good way to read the report just recommending it to 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 our listeners 
is first to go, of course, through the executive summary. It gives an idea about everything. And then for in-depth reading on specific topics, I think the best thing would be to check a specific section in chapter three uh, and read about the context and diagnosis in this specific topic and then move to uh, chapter five and six and see like the solutions for it, be it something about uh, the enablers or something about a specific sector. Yeah. So if if you're interested in like the knowledge economy, then like read the section on the knowledge economy in in the you know chapter three or whatever on how the knowledge economy currently is configured and exists and mm-hmm. all of this data around it. Then read what they think should happen with the knowledge economy, which is like far later in the report. And th- and then like the knowledge economy has there there's actually a project related to the knowledge economy in the final chapter. So then you would go on and read that. And instead of trying to read it through like like a book, like front to back, you should pick out something that you want to follow and then just like follow that wherever that goes in the report. Exactly, exactly. Okay, now in terms of content, um, the, the main, uh, one of the main arguments in the report is a certain a vicious economic cycle that they talk about throughout the report. There's one slide that is repeated so no one should be confused. It's the same slide repeated throughout the report. There, there's a lot of these slides, but this Lots one you see a lot as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this slide is the diagnosis for the problem of the Lebanese economy. Um, in two lines, the Lebanese economy is going through vicious a vicious cycle driven by a highly volatile economy reliant on diaspora inflows rather than productive sectors. And the second big issue is corruption and fiscal challenges driving a non-conductive business environment. This is how McKinsey summarizes it. But when it, when you go into the details of this of the diagnosis, um, the process or the cycle is that we have very slow growth uh, of the economy. It's one fourth of the global average in the last 40 years and very volatile growth. It goes up and down uh, depending on occasional things like political stability and inflows of money. Uh, and wars. Abroad, and wars, exactly. And the money that's coming in is going mostly to for consumption and less to productive sectors. Um, it's mostly to finance debt or to consume. This means that there are little resources for capital expenditures, expenditure investment in things that will produce value later on. And this lack of uh, investment in capital expenditures uh, leads to the horrible state of infrastructure that we have, which McKinsey says... Um, ranks 113th out of 137 countries, according to the World Economic Forum. This is how bad the infrastructure is. And the best example is the the effects of the storm this week. So this, in addition to the high corruption and slow legislation for business, uh, the country ranks 133rd out of 190 countries in terms of ease of doing business, means there is less foreign direct investment in the productive sectors, low productive productive sector contribution to the economy. It's only 14% of the incremental GDP compared to what should be around 20% as a benchmark. And this means, of course, limited job creation and productivity. So this cycle is means we're not producing wealth at the same time. The money that's coming in is going into, into the wrong sectors, which is something that everyone talks about when they talk about the structural transformation of the Lebanese economy, right? Whatever your ideological tendencies or if you know a bit about about the Lebanese economy, you would know that the first and big problem is this. There's no real value added being produced and exported so that the balance of payment is 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 healthy and so that more dollars are coming into the economy and invested in productive sectors. Yeah, and and this looks very nice, right? Uh, it, this whole like, oh, there's this cycle, one th- A leads to B, C, D, E, F, G, which leads back to A, 
But like, if you actually look at this, like there are, there's like non sequiturs sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, low capital expenditure. Yeah, it does lead to horrible infrastructure. But then like they just add out of nowhere. Oh, plus high levels of corruption, which comes out of nowhere in the cycle, uh, contributes along with poor infrastructure to a bad business environment, right? Yeah. So I, I feel like they sort of it's not took a some smooth. shortcuts and maybe ignored some glaring inputs. Yeah. Speaking of which, I think the fact that there is no monetary policy anywhere in this cycle is quite astonishing, especially given the fact that Lebanon's economic policy for the last since this, the end of the war has been primarily its monetary policy. And there's uh, no mention of that and no mention of the fact that perhaps the high interest rate policy of the central bank, which uh, ensures that a lot of money comes in and um, is is stored in deposits and bank deposits, has had a negative effect on investment in productive sectors because because it's much more profitable to put your money in the bank on the long run than to invest them in a productive sector, especially if there's not enough stability or the environment is not very encouraging in terms of infrastructure. So the high interest rates of policy of the central bank should be in this cycle somewhere, but McKinsey keeps it out for some reason. Right. So there are definitely you know things that we feel should be included but aren't but this is just this is sort of just the starting point for the mckinsey report you have to base sort of all of their recommendations are premised on this is how we see the economy and this is how we see the problems in the economy okay so we are not going to go through all of these sectors blow by blow because honestly who's going to fucking listen to that <laughs> but I, I i am just going to like go through the outline very very quickly you know they they, they choose five sectors uh, plus the diaspora to sort of like focus on, they they say agriculture, industry, tourism, the knowledge economy, basically tech, finance, and then the diaspora, right? And in each one of these sections, they lay out the problems. All of these problems in, in every single section, they are things that we know. Like there, there's literally nothing that surprised me. There's nothing that I have read that like, oh, I didn't know that was a problem. I've never heard that before. Nothing. These are, but but it's all in the same place, right? So for each one of these they say these are the problems and then these are our you know recommendations and and usually those recommendations are either just like well fix the problem or sometimes they they will come out and say uh, well a cool way of fixing this problem is by doing x or y and then in addition to going into these sectors mm -hmm. like there are these larger things right that that underpin the economy things like infrastructure things like electricity um things like public finance and and just like the legislative and the public policy uh atmosphere and they they go through each of these and say well if you if you actually want industry to take off you you sort of need the electricity sector to work and and this is the way that you can fix that you know you need to build this much capacity and do it this way uh, and, and then you will have solved the problem. They also talk about like a, a project management delivery unit, uh, which my colleague at the Daily Star, Timur Asari, has written about, uh, which is basically just like a new government entity that would just oversee projects from the beginning to end. Uh, and, and then the sort of like big bang conclusion is their flagship projects. They have three flagship projects. The first one is actually a series of projects. It's uh, three quick win projects. And, and those are to fix tourism, quick win, <laughs> uh, 
and then two other quick win projects that they don't really go into any detail about, just about uh, agricultural exports, uh, picking like two or three new agricultural exports to penetrate new markets. Uh, and then the centennial of Greater Lebanon in 2020 that's going to happen. Again, no details, but these are the three quick win projects. Uh, and the three quick win projects are like project one in the flagship projects, right? Mm-hmm. The second flagship project is to create a construction technology zone on the Syrian border. Basically, this is the prefabbed housing idea in, in order to sort of like help rebuild Syria. And this is where that infamous slide, you know, that shows how much destruction, how much damage was done in all these different Syrian cities makes an appearance. Yeah. Uh, this slide has been making the rounds on social media. These bars with, you know, the damage in, in red. Exactly. Like, and, 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 uh, the more damage you have, then the more profit you can make as a construction business. Exactly, exactly. And then the the third flagship project is just like the creation of a tech hub, essentially in mm-hmm. Beirut or Tripoli or both, sort of. Uh, and and that's it. That is the report. That is what McKinsey recommends. So exactly, and we cannot comment on each you know each intervention in each sector. Or I'm sure a lot of policies that they recommend are uh, tricky. They're controversial for some experts in these uh, specific sectors. Um, we cannot go into that amount of detail now. But what we can do now, or what I think is important, is to step back and look at the big picture of the report. You know, did it do what it was supposed to do? Yeah. So I, I think we should we should be fair, right? Mm. And we we should we should talk about the good things because there were there were good things about this report. There was a lot, from my perspective, there was a lot of data. Just yeah. like, and I, I love data. So, I, I mean, it it did feel sort of like a hostile document dump at times that I was sort of like searching for the needle in the haystack uh, for, you know, something good and trying to find, you know, where is that thing that I'm looking for. But it, it's, it's still a lot of data and it's a lot of it is good data. And I think I'm going to be using this report as just a reference in the future. I totally agree. I mean, as someone who is who works in public policy research, this is really useful. Just as a compilation, one document in which you can, you know, control F anything that you need is quite useful. And another thing that I liked about this report is that as opposed to a lot of people who just, you know, uh, claim that industry and agriculture are not part of the future and we should look for uh, like look for new sectors only. Uh, this report actually puts some some focus on agriculture and industry in, in terms of uh, investment and improving the sectors. And um, they consider them as part of the, the, the plan to ensure the economic sustainability of Lebanon in the long term. And I think this part of the economic transformation vision is is commendable. And, and I, I would agree with that. But I would say that I was also disappointed by other choices that they made uh, in, in this, like, which sector should we prioritize? Uh, specifically, they decided not to, like, prioritize healthcare and education, which I think th- these two sectors always sort of get short shrift uh, because, like, they're just long-term investments. You don't see returns immediately, usually. And, and so uh, the fact that they just, like, totally ignored this was really disheartening to me, especially because if you if you read, like, their, like, sort of methodology of how they how, how they said that they chose the sectors to focus on mm-hmm. they they outlined like seven different criteria like grouped into like three categories but then you look at the slide where they like measure all of the sectors against each other mm-hmm. and you see that like oh well both healthcare and education outrank 
like agriculture on basically all but one or two of the criteria, yet agriculture was chosen over healthcare and education. Why is that? Well, if you actually like take a step back and like forget what the McKinsey people told you was the reason for choosing these sectors and just like look at w one of the criteria, the balance of payments, like yeah. that's the only one you need to look at that. Like it seems as though they chose solely based on this criterion. Yeah. And I'm not surprised. And uh, to confirm what you're saying, it's not only about the fact that education and healthcare do not produce value in the short term. It's also that they employ a lot of people and it's almost 100% public investment that you can recommend to a government. So to recommend more public investment at the same time to say fiscal discipline and fiscal consolidation and austerity measures, it just doesn't work. I think that's why also they could not set a good strategy for healthcare and education because that would mean, you know, spending more money. Right. It went against like the obvious ideological underpinnings of the report. Okay, so I, I think that we have now firmly transitioned from the good things into the bad things. So l let's just roll with that. I mean, unless you have any other good things. Okay, I need that. <laughs> yeah, another problem with the report is the content in terms of content distribution and presentation. There's so much repetition. Each important slide is repeated many, many times over in the report. You would look at one section and then you would see a summary of the section and then a summary of one of the parts of the section and then an elaboration of each uh, of these parts and then another summary again. It's just so much repetition. You didn't need 1,274 1, slides for this. Right. And and also, it's hard to just find anything. in the, Like the table of contents doesn't actually list like slide numbers or anything like that. And so I literally had to create my own table of contents. Yeah. Just so that I could find my way around the report. Maybe I'll tweet that out later. That's <laughs> I, I think also just the presentation was was sloppy, you know, for the amount of money that was paid for this report, you would think that like they would run it through spell check, uh, but they didn't. True. I found some froms that should be offs, etc. It was uh, it was poor on many levels. And uh, when you look at the details, like did does McKinsey not have a copy editor? Are you looking for a job? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But also the graphics. Speaking of minor things, the graphics are horrible. I mean, we always blame the Lebanese government for having bad graphics on their websites on the, their main TV channel. But come on, this this is McKinsey. It should be fancy. Uh, I did not like what I saw. Yeah, yeah. I mean, overall, I, I thought, as far as that goes, this report is a great advertisement for BCG and Bain, <laughs> McKinsey's biggest competitors. Disclaimer, we did not get paid for that. No, we did not. <laughs> but a less minor thing is, uh, I think, the sloppiness in, in this owner section in some of the slides. The, this owner's column that tells you which government agency is responsible for this initiative that they call the priority initiative uh, for each sector or for each recommendation and in, in a lot of cases it's a bit confusing like in one of the cases it's about public beaches and they say it's the ministry of tourism while it should be obviously the ministry of public works and in others it's just like a whole page of initiatives and it's all ministry of finance ministry of finance ministry of finance although each one of them would require for example some legislation or some decision from another ministry but they justify everything with one footnote saying it also requires coordination with other government agencies um this this showed a bit that they did not do their homework everywhere and yeah report. yeah and and speaking of homework like I feel as though there were a lot of places where I didn't quite understand the decisions they had made. You know, you would see something like, oh, well, Lebanon should do X, 
Uh, I'm sure they had a reason for that, but they didn't show their work. So I, I'm not sure why I should agree or disagree with their recommendation because they didn't tell me why. Exactly. And this point is, I think, um, clearest in the, in the part where they talk about fiscal consolidation and fiscal discipline. So if you read the report, everything about fiscal policy is either in the diagnostics or in the enablers and chapter six enablers and how to create the environment for the for the economic vision. And in fiscal policy, in the diagnosis, they mentioned something very important, which is that our public debt is just basically interest on the original money that we borrowed that has accumulated over the years. So all of our current public debt is accumulated interest. At the same time, when you go to the solution, they do not mention anything related to a debt plan or debt restructuring. Why is that? You know, why didn't they consider this choice? Uh, another thing is with uh, the public sector and its size. They mentioned that the size of the public sector is okay. They do mention that it's a bit. It would be a bit oversized uh, with the ranks and salary scale, the the wage hike of last year. At the same time, they don't talk about any specific public companies that are big, uh, too big, or that are uh, not performing well, except for the uh, for the electricity company. But when it comes to solutions. They just recommend privatizing government agencies and state-owned companies, and they don't mention which ones. They just say, like, a plan to privatize and float these companies would be good for capital markets. It's just completely, like, uh, uh, out of nowhere. It was parachuted into the recommendations, although the diagnosis does not talk about this this issue at all. And then the third thing that I found when looking at uh, at, uh, fiscal policy here is that on taxes, they only mentioned that Lebanon is not uh, enforcing its taxes enough and that it's collecting 42% of its tax capacity. Uh, this tax capacity concept is a bit of a bullshit concept. Like public finance experts argue whether it should be, it should exist in the first place or not. And also it does not mean anything because what is your tax capacity? It means the maximum you can tax. Who sets that? It depends on the tax rates, which is a political economic thing that depends on which party or which group of people is the most powerful in the country and have the most influence over politicians. At the same time, when they talk about uh, fiscal consolidation and case studies and success stories, they talk about three countries, Jamaica and Italy and Slovenia. And when you look at taxes in these countries, they all have higher taxes and more progressive tax systems than Lebanon. In Lebanon, income tax for corporate and for um, personal income stop at 21%. So this means that whatever money you make, even if it's $400 million, which is the case for, for example, Bank Audi, you only pay less than 20% or around 20% of that in taxes, which is insane. And at the same time, McKinsey does not propose in any po- at any point in the report to make the tax system more progressive. They did not recommend it. Uh, and instead, they say that you have to enforce VAT better and uh, you have to introduce a new tobacco tax, which I think... Of course, it's going to harm people who are importing uh, tobacco, but also mostly people who are consuming cigarettes. So cigarettes would be a bit more expensive. So the way they're thinking about this is the red lines are we don't do anything that would harm the banks in any way. You know, we don't restructure the debt, which is largely owned by the banks, and we don't increase taxes on the rich, which are just really the bankers are the richest. The the, the bank banks are the richest companies in Lebanon, the ones making the most profits. So the report kind of leaves these things uh, aside as if they are red lines. It doesn't talk about them, but things like freezing public wages and public salaries, or reducing expenditures in government agencies, these are acceptable. 
So I wonder whether it's McKinsey's ideological bias or instructions from the prime minister or the Lebanese government that led them to these conclusions. But I find absolutely no reason to to trust the the recommendations on the fiscal side of this report. Yeah, and they're and they again they didn't show their work, so we don't know how they made these decisions. So were these decisions made for them, or did they just decide for some reason that this is the right way to go about it? Where oh well, we need to you know do better at VAT tax collection rather than uh, you know a more progressive taxation uh, that that would harm other people. Who knows? Yeah, and one other thing that I had an issue with was just sort of the magic fairy dust uh, aspect of the report. Right? They had these absolutely unbelievable timelines for a lot of these projects you know and this report was delivered a while ago to the Lebanese government but we're already past like deadlines for a lot of these things you know like we had like January 1st deadlines to that January 1st 2019 deadlines for a couple of these like quick win projects and stuff right well that's already done that's uh, that's uh, we're we're already behind schedule and we and don't have a government exactly so that gives you an idea, you know, that this McKinsey report has these like it, it's it's often some sort of fairy tale land where the normal rules of just Lebanese politics do not apply. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how how much we can blame them for that, because they're just a consulting company giving us the best case scenario or what we should do. And when they're recommending things, you know, they better have good outcomes soon. Otherwise, why are we paying them this much money to recommend them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just for example, you know, they say, oh, Lebanon, you know, should compete in medical tourism. You know, well, how long did it take the UAE to get where it is in medical tourism? And they basically expect Lebanon to, if not replicate that, do something, you know, competitive within space of six years. Yeah, the, the, the timelines are unrealistic and the targets as well are in some cases unrealistic. We can't go into the details because that's specific for each sector. But overall, they're very optimistic. Yeah, and, and I think that this points to the fundamental problem with the report in general is that it just ignores the political realities of the country, which it, which it shouldn't do. They should take into account what the political uh, realities are. But if you are... I, I suppose I shouldn't necessarily blame McKinsey for this, because, you know, if the Lebanese government came to me and said, we're going to give you one point three million dollars to write a comprehensive report for us on how you you can on how we can fix our economy. You know, I might just say, yeah, even though I know what really needs to happen to fix the economy is you have to have political will. And that doesn't exist. Yeah, totally. I mean, I completely agree. And and. The economy is not a technical thing to solve, you know. It's not like, uh, get, bring me a private company who knows better, and then they can put set an economic vision. So we already know all the technical details on all of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we might disagree on certain policies, and this should be the debate rather than just like a whole economic vision from, from one company. But as you're saying, the economy is something, and as our discussion, I think, reflects, it's something that depends on, you know, a game of interests and a game of, 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 of politics among these different social groups and different forces in society that pushes uh, economic policy in one direction and not the other. This trend of McKinsey and other consulting companies kind of offering solutions to government and it's a much worse situation in, in the Gulf than it is here. But with this new report, we're seeing it here. And with the economy minister saying McKinsey, the McKinsey report is our... W- 
and with the economy minister saying the McKinsey report will be our government uh, economic policy, this means that we're maybe going too far with this, you know, from what we can expect and how we can use this thing. And we have to go back to, to understanding that any policy of these uh, things that we're talking about in terms of fiscal consolidation or in terms of industrial policy, etc., will be negotiated with the people who are affected by it. And these people will probably affect the outcomes of it. So it's much more related to, you know, the political sociology and the political economy in the country than what the best solution on paper is. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that leads me to my final question. Was it worth it to pay $1.3 million for this report? There's a part of me that's happy because now I have this reference, as you were saying, um, that I didn't have before, that I can just navigate kind of easily. And also... Um, that I don't think the money would have been spent on something better. And this is a bit cynical, I know, but, you know, $1.3 million uh, in terms of the size of the contracts that our politicians are giving to their businessmen friends, this is not enough. This is not too much. It's okay. It's still affordable. But in terms of its actual use and value for policymaking rather than research, I think uh, it's a bit, uh, it would. it is very exaggerated that uh, that we take our economic policy as a country from it. What do you think? I I think it was, you know, yeah, probably fine for the government to pay, you know, $1.3 million for this report. I don't, however, if I can sort of flip things around, I don't think it was a good idea for McKinsey to take the project, though, or for them to deliver this poor of a product. We'll put it that way. Harsh verdict from you, Benjamin. <laughs> Calls him like I sees him. <laughs> and I think on that note, we're done. We're, we are going to uh, put a link to the report so you guys can read it uh, in the show notes. Please go through it. Uh, there's there's a million things in this report. I'm, I'm sure we did not have enough time really to even scratch the surface, I feel like, on a lot of this stuff. True. Um, so I, I think this is a conversation that uh, will be continued, although not on air on the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I, I I feel like I am done with this report for a long time. <laughs> just, ugh. Last couple of weeks have been heavy, put it that way. Yes, indeed. Uh, but hopefully we, we were able to give an idea for people who are interested in this uh, and do not have the energy to read the report or people who want to look at it in, in depth but uh, are still hesitating. Exactly. Like, like we said, go through it, read it like for a specific section, not for the entire report. Okay, I guess that's it for this week. Uh, we'll come back next week with a new topic that's hopefully less exhausting than this one uh, to prepare and also to understand. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.